Listening to Open Up the Wall, Revelations of a Renovation Contractor. Now, this is what they call a quote, inspirational memoir. It's about my career change from award winning actor to the owner of my own construction company. It's definitely a memoir, and throughout the 14 episodes of this podcast, you're going to meet some wonderful characters on both sides of the tool belt. This podcast is an edited version of the 27-chapter book of the same title, and it's available in e-form or hard copy. You can find out more about the book and about me, the author, Jeff Bowes, on my website, www.openupthewall.com. Feel free to leave any questions or comments you may have. I'd love to hear from you. In episode 12, I quit a job. I was trying so hard to make too many people happy that I almost made a lot of people unhappy. Almost, thank God. It is one of the very few episodes in my life that still make me cringe. The worst part is, there was nothing to learn from this event because I knew better from the beginning. I just didn't listen to my inner voice. Always listen to that little voice inside. It's there for a reason. Yeah, enough. Here's episode 13, Bloody Hell. My post-op instructions were to walk a lot but not lift anything. On day three, I was shuffling along the sidewalk in front of my house when my neighbor Bob called to me from his rickety front porch. How much will you charge me for a new veranda? Off the top of my head, around 15000 Bob said, Good. Let's do it. The mailman won't come up the stairs anymore now that the railing's broken off, so, yeah, let's get going on this. I was taken aback. Seriously? Just like that? (laughs) What choice do I have? It's got to be done. Well, okay, I said. I can't lift anything for seven more days, so you have time to get some other estimates, for your own peace of mind, at least. I'd trust you, Bob replied. And I know where you live. (laughs) This was going to be good. Working with real wood, outdoors, in the summer, and across the street and two doors down from my own house. I began waking up early with veranda designs on my mind and staying up late working on the graph paper drawings that had to accompany the building permit application. Front view, side view, and elevation. The houses on Bob's side of the street were large, traditional, detached homes, separated by about three feet of mutual walkway. Their vast verandas spanned the width of the house with high mahogany strip ceilings under a traditional peaked roof. This is why they're called verandas, not porches. Whole families spent their summers on these grand structures. I hired Spencer as my helper because he was tall and the ceiling beams were over eight feet high. He was a bright, positive art school student who loved life, but this wonderful quality was belied by his tone. Even his superlatives sounded indignant. That looks great, came off as an accusation. What a beautiful sunset. Sounded like there would be trouble if I didn't agree. Anyway, he was a hard worker and I think he liked me, but I'll never really know. We jacked up the roof and supported each corner with a six-by-six beam held in place with not one but two steel posts. 
This was safety overkill because I didn't want any crushed children on my conscience. You see, a gang of preschoolers had begun collecting on the porch next door to watch us cut up the old porch, and they shouted, Whoa! with each rotted timber that we pitched to the ground below. At any given time, there were a few curious kids playing between the houses and hanging around the site for a while with maybe a nanny somewhere nearby. Safety became a priority as my imagination kept coming up with images of bleeding, mangled kids. I put up orange plastic fencing to keep the little ones from falling into the fascinating holes that we were digging for the concrete support posts. But the ugly fence drew attention to the job site, which attracted more curious kids who came with their parents for a tour of the holes and plenty of questions, all beginning with, why? The kids had turned this into a neighborhood event. There would come a point in this build when I would need some more skilled help to work with me and Spencer. It was only for a few days, so I thought that Stan might be interested. Sounds good, he said. I'll have to come and go a bit, but we can work that out. He pulled up in his old van, and I called from the porch, Hi, Stan! And within seconds, four kids ran from the backyard dressed in plastic armor carrying popsicles. They all watched him come up the stairs with his huge wooden hammer hanging out of his tool belt slung over his shoulder. Earlier in the day, I had told the kids the tale of the great big carpenter who was coming over to lift the porch roof up and bash the posts into position with one mighty whack of his legendary hammer. So now Stan was greeted with reverent awe by my young followers. After introductions all around, we shooed the kids away and placed the new porch posts into their final position and finally took down the steel supports. It felt so natural doing this careful, precise work with Stan again. When the shadows got long, we tidied up and walked to a patio where we sat in the sun, drank some beer, and planned the next move, just as we had done for so many years. There was more talk of age and aches and pains than there used to be, though. Stan left for a couple of days after we hung the floor joists, leaving Spencer and me to put down the pine floorboards. When we were done, I lay face down on the deck and I inhaled deeply. This alarmed Spencer. What's wrong? Oh my God, are you having a stroke or something? No, I'm just smelling the wood. What? Why? Well, because I miss it. I miss doing this. Do you know that I can go for months, for years, building stuff without using a single piece of natural wood? These days I build whole kitchens and bathrooms and decks with wood that isn't wood. Cabinetry is all made with MDF, medium-density fiberboard, which means pressed cardboard and formaldehyde glue. You can't lie down and smell it because it's toxic. So is plywood, pressure-treated lumber and laminated veneer lumber and particle board and oriented strand board. You have to wear a mask when you cut any of this stuff or you'll get cancer. So I'm lying here and I can feel the warmth of real wood and I can trace the grain with my finger as it travels down to the knot and sometimes I press my initials into the wood with my fingernails. Watch. Spencer lay face down beside me and took some deep breaths. We lay like that for a few minutes without speaking. And then he said, This is pretty chill. And he rolled over on his back. Resting his head against mine, he raised one tattooed arm, said, Selfie, and his phone clicked. The caption on his Facebook post read, Built this, 
taking in the smell of real wood with my boss. Art is in your heart. When Stan came back the next day, he started to work on the stairs while I began on the railings. By 3.30, we were nearly done. The neighbors would be happy if we were to quit early because I was making a hell of a racket ripping one-by-six pine with my portable table saw, the most obnoxious-sounding tool in the carpenter's cannon. Now the kids were all arriving home from day camps, and they were lolling on their porches with their mums and their nannies, sucking on slushies. For everyone within an eight-porch radius, the painful shrieking of my table saw was destroying the peace of that beautiful summer afternoon. Aware of this intrusion, I was entertaining a weird thought that popped into my head. The inventor of the Sea-Doo must have taken someone for a test ride, and that someone must have observed that the Sea-Doo was so noisy that it could ruin a day at the beach for the hundreds of people on shore. Well, given the number of Sea-Doos on the water today, the inventor of the Sea-Doo must have replied, Fuck them. Then I saw a streak of blood hit the window beside me. Oh, no, I thought, one of the kids. And then I saw more blood splattered across the untreated pine floor. And then I saw my hand spurting blood all over the table saw. Even though I wasn't in pain yet, the visual freaked me out. What the fuck? Oh, no, holy fuck! Jesus fucking Christ, fuck! I heard Stan call. You okay? I heard a child shout. Jeff said the F word. I called to Stan. I've cut my left thumb and I, I think a finger or two. I can't see for the blood. Oh, fuck. Oh, Jesus. Don't fucking show me. I will throw up. From somewhere I heard, get in the house, kids. I shut my mouth and I hurried home to wash off the blood and assess the damage. Through the blood spurting out of my thumb, I could see that the whole thumb was still there. So I calmed down a bit. My index finger was like a geyser, though, so I, I couldn't tell how much actual finger was left. As I came bleeding into the kitchen, my daughter gasped and said, I better get Mum. Shame and guilt arrived. No, 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 don't bother her, I said. I, I just have to stop the bleeding. I'll put a bandage on it. When I got it under the tap, I could see that I had sliced off the meaty part of my thumb. And when I put my index finger under the tap, I caught a glimpse of the finger in two halves, sliced up the middle like a forked tongue, and then it was obscured by more profuse bleeding. Suddenly I went from no pain to a lot of pain, and from behind me I heard, Mom, Dad's in trouble. My lucky break that day was that Dixie was working from home. Trying to sound calm, I said, I I've really fucked things up, I'm afraid. I'm so sorry, but can you take me to the hospital? Her face went from alarm to all business. In no time, there was a clean towel around my hand, and we were headed to the hospital. Just drop me off, I said. You can't park anywhere around here, so drop me off. I'll be fine. Shut up. The big-ass paramedic at the check-in was busy flirting with the skinny paramedic with the wispy goatee, so she told me to take a seat. Dripping a trail of blood, I headed to the waiting area. No sooner had I sat down when the people on either side of me got up and moved away, leaving me more overcome with shame. I'd been careless, and now I might lose a finger. What a loser. What a fucking Jeffrey. I hadn't thought about Jeffrey in a long time. What a weird thing to be thinking, anyway. I, I couldn't even figure out what had gone wrong yet. 
Why is my husband sitting there bleeding? Why hasn't he seen the triage nurse yet? Dixie was here. In no time flat, she had me registered and I was sent for an x-ray where it was revealed that the bone in my index finger was ground up as far as the first knuckle. Dr. Kim came in and looked at my finger. She had long, delicate fingers with her nails cut very short. I'm going to sew you back together, she said. Follow me. In a thin voice, I asked, Can my wife come too? Lucky for Dr. Kim that she said, I suppose so. We went into an operating room that appeared to be part storage area. There were boxes piled and a wall of cabinets and drawers. I lay on the operating table under a huge light. Turn your finger towards the light, said Dr. Kim. I can't see the light. What? I have my eyes closed. Oh, for heaven's sake, open your eyes and turn the inside of your finger towards the light. No. Open them. No. I don't want an image of this split finger to ever be in my consciousness. Ever. I'm keeping my eyes shut. I can turn his finger for you, Dixie said. Wash your hands then and put on some gloves, said Dr. Kim, and a mask, and bring me more gauze pads that are in the top middle drawer. I kept my eyes shut while the two of them worked. Dixie twisted my hand this way and that while Dr. Kim sewed. With one hand easing mine into position and one hand moving the light to where Dr. Kim commanded Dixie's contribution was the reason things got sewn up so quickly, thereby avoiding the risk of bone infection, which would have necessitated cutting off my finger at the first knuckle. I'm going to need another needle to get through the fingernails, said Dr. Kim. Bring me that sterile tray there, please. Are you actually going to sew right through his fingernail, asked Dixie? Stop talking, I commanded. I don't want to know. I don't even want to imagine that. They stopped talking. I thought I heard a titter. Twenty minutes into the procedure, I said, I can feel that. This is a bigger job than I anticipated, so the freezing's beginning to wear off, said Dr. Kim. A couple of minutes later, I asked if I could have some more freezing. No, we're nearly done. Yeah, I said, but it really hurts. Four more sutures said Dr. Kim. Make it two, I bargained. Four, said Dixie. You can take it. And I did. And then it was over, and Dr. Kim removed her gloves, said bye-bye, and hurried back to the emergency room. She didn't even leave a space for me to say thank you. Back at home, I sat in the kitchen looking at the fat bandages on my thumb and forefinger while Dixie mopped dried blood from the hallway, the sink, the kitchen floor. Do you remember what Dr. Kim said about the home handyman, she asked? No, because I made a conscious effort not to listen to you talk about bones and needles and infections. Well, she said that your average weekend handyman doesn't have accidents like this because they never lose their fear of their power saws. It's only you pros who get casual and slice yourselves up. Does that fit with what happened to you? Do you know what went wrong? Yeah, sure. I should have lowered the saw blade from three inches to one inch before continuing with a narrower cut. My brain had geared my fingers for a one-inch high blade, but they ran into a three-inch high blade. That's it in a nutshell, but the fact remains I got cut by a stationary saw, which can only mean one thing. I was careless. I'm so sorry to put you through all this. I'm so ashamed of myself. I feel so stupid. I felt a bit better the next day after fielding calls of support and encouragement. 
Stan called and told me about the time he sliced his thumb right through to the tendon. And then Rick called and told me about shooting himself with a nail gun and how they had to take him to the hospital with a drawer nailed to his hand. Then Davey called to tell me how he almost cut his fingertip off, but it didn't cut right through. So realizing it was too far gone to be saved, he put the finger back on the saw and finished the job. And then Michael told me about the burns he got lighting his leg on fire with sparks from a metal saw. And then Ken called. And he told me I was lucky to have got this far in construction without killing myself because, in his words, I was such a fucking idiot. He reminded me of the time when I hit my head with my own hammer, told me how fucking dumb that was, and then told me I was lucky to be alive and that I still had a finger. And then he said, at least you're going to look like a carpenter now. So now I was part of a club. Being in such company helped me feel better about being such a fucking idiot. Images of the event continued to arrive unannounced in my mind. A close-up picture of my finger spurting blood all over the picture window would suddenly appear and then, just as suddenly, disappear. I thought of all the soldiers and the cops and the frontline workers with much, much more horrible, traumatic images trapped in their heads, upending the rest of their lives. And boy, I counted my blessings. Well, there's always something to be grateful for, said Lee as she pushed my twisted finger into my palm. You're lucky you still got this finger. Lee, the physiotherapist, was trying to regain some mobility in the end joint of my finger now that the stitches were out. My first impression of her had been a soft-spoken young lady with kind eyes and a demure, pursed smile. She was very gentle and really sweet, right up to the moment that she put my hand on her therapy table. Latching onto my finger with her right hand, she literally bared her teeth as she forced my hand onto the table with her left hand. And once restrained, she had her way with my poor finger, bending it and twisting it, all the while wearing a nasty scowl on her face. Twice a week I was subjected to her torture. I tried to weasel out of the last few sessions. It's kind of a losing battle, don't you think, Lee? Oh, don't say that, she said, bending my finger painfully forward. You'll get your mobility back if you do your stretching exercises. And she shouted directly into my face. Okay, you don't have to yell in my face. Well, it's necessary sometimes. You're squeamish. That makes you the worst kind of patient. You try to avoid pain by not doing your stretching exercises. Oh, for God's sakes, Lee, I do all of your exercises every day and fat lot of good it does. I still can't make a fist properly and I have no feeling in my fingertip. Well, you're pretty old, so it's going to take longer. Seriously, come on, I'm not that old. Huh. Look at yourself. You're above average age to be working in construction. You will sustain more injuries in the next five years than you have in your whole working life. Sprains, torn ligaments, lower back pain, arthritis, it's all coming your way. You're not stupid. Surely you must know that. Um, I've never thought about it. I don't feel old enough. Lee pushed my finger into my palm until I winced. Then think about all the repetitive movement you do. I can tell by the way you walk that your left knee will be the next thing to go from all the up and down. And by the way you take off your jacket, I can see there's probably a muscular skeletal issue going on in your neck. You want me to take a look? No way. You like hurting me too much. 
I appreciate the lecture, though. First the hernia, and now the finger. For the second time in a year, I was out of work because of injury. Nobody else that I knew had such bad luck. But was it bad luck, or was it something in me? I wasn't the clumsiest, but I was certainly the oldest of my peers, by 10, 20, or 30 years, depending on the crew that I was working with. Lee's warning about the inevitable toll that construction would take on the body would not leave my mind. There was no denying that some of my pain was now chronic, so I couldn't completely dismiss her professional opinion much as I wanted to. Anyway, I kept on working, beautifying the city one house at a time and enjoying life with my professional friends. I finally had an image of myself that I liked, one that had grown out of my life as a builder of things that please people. Still, my split finger didn't work, and I couldn't lift much weight above my head with my left arm. It probably wouldn't hurt to take some time off. But then Mrs. Pearson called about three new doors, and I never say no to repeat clients, so I put off taking time off to do the doors. And then Sheila broke her outdoor tap, so I ran a new pipe through her basement wall and hooked up a new one. And then a new client wanted a wooden grid built for his living room ceiling. And it was such a unique build that I couldn't say no, so I ended up with a herniated disc in my neck. Hey, it happens at your age, said Marcio, the x-ray tech. I keep telling everybody I'm not old. I'm, well, I'm not that old. Okay, sir, if you say so. I lay on the x-ray table while Marcio positioned my chin. A terrible thought entered my mind and sent a shiver through my body. My best before date had arrived. I had to come to terms with my shelf life. I had loved ones who needed me for more than just a paycheck. Know when to fold them. Quit while you're ahead. Let Jesus make the call. The speaker on the ceiling squawked, Take a breath and hold it. And I gasped in a breath, not because I was instructed to, but because I suddenly was startled by a vision of me at a flea market, selling my tools from the back of my truck. No severance, no pension, slow death as a Walmart greeter. Thank you.